Hey, open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James is, uh, if you don't have your Bible, it should be one of these on the floor around you. It's page 847 in this Bible. If you've got your own Bible, that's great. Keep bringing those during this series. We're going to dive pretty deep into the book of James. I'd love for you to be reading along with us. Um, I have an announcement to make. I have not been possessed by the spirit of James Earl Jones. I do have a bit of a cold, um, so my voice is about a half an octave lower this morning. So if I have to stop and blow my nose or do something gross. I'm sorry. I know it's disgusting, uh, but I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, James is near the end of the New Testament, but many scholars believe it was actually the first uh, book that we have captured in the scripture that was written in the New Testament, maybe as early as 10 to 12 years after the death of Jesus. Now, James, as Jerry said, is the half-brother of Jesus. We say the half-brother because Mary and Joseph were the parents of James, whereas we know that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so Mary was his mom, but God was his father. And just a few years after Jesus's death, James had already become an important leader in the church in Jerusalem. And so we're gonna spend six weeks in the book of James and we're gonna, like I said, we're gonna dive pretty deep. This will be a little different than some of the series we do and that it's a little more, uh, well, I'll use a churchy word. It's a little more expository and a little less topical. So uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna go through uh, kind of verse by verse of the book of James and we're gonna see what the text teaches us. And so because we're doing that, we're gonna do something a little different. Might be a little awkward for you, um, but depending on what church, if you grew up in a church tradition, it might feel right at home. We're gonna read the whole passage together this morning. And so I'm gonna ask you, if you're physically able, would you stand uh, and honor the reading of the word of God? And we're gonna read James 1, 1 through 12. You can find it on the side screens here. Let's read it together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So today, uh, we're gonna talk about what happens when we face trials in our lives. And what we're gonna see is in that those moments where you think you feel like life is doing something to you, well, it may actually be God wanting to do something in you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words of James, and we're just uh, excited about what you have to teach us through them today. Lord, help us to see that in our trials, you may be doing a work in our faith and trying to grow us and make us mature and complete. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. 
So uh, we are starting this new series for six weeks called Against the Grain. Um, this is uh, in the book of James. This is actually a letter that James wrote to people in the church. And you can see right away that he addresses it to the 12 tribes or to the Christians who are scattered. Now, what, what does that mean that they're scattered? Well, think about it this way. When, when Jesus walked the earth, all of the believers were with him, right? They were all kind of around him and followed him around uh, for the three and a half years of his ministry. But then he was crucified and then he rose again, and then he ascended into heaven, and the church was centered in Jerusalem, and the believers were still together. But they started to grow, and it, the church exploded. And it got so um, big and a little bit threatening to the powers that be that the Roman government, who was in charge of the area around Jerusalem at the time, decided it would be best if they started to persecute the believers and not um, let them start to just kind of grow uncontained. And so uh, the Romans persecuted them and the believers, fearing for their life, fled to different parts of the known world. And so what it means that they were scattered is that they were living in places that were foreign to them. And they were living in places that were hostile to their faith. Wherever the believers, wherever the Christians were living at the time, they were living in a place where they were having to live in a way that was countercultural. And that's what James is going to call them to do. And that's why we've called this series Against the Grain, because the book of James has very real, very practical advice for those of us who are trying to live our life as Christ followers. But you know what? It's sometimes very different from the advice that the world offers us, that, that James is gonna call us in a way that we, to live that we don't conform to the world around us. And even though this letter was written nearly 2,000 years ago, we are living in a time and place where truly following Jesus is not the norm. And so this letter is as relevant for us today as it was 2,000 years ago to the believers then. Got it? All right, so we're gonna live against the grain. We're gonna spend the next six weeks living against the grain. Uh, we're gonna start in James 1.1, and excuse me for just a second. Okay, James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now, James introduces himself as a servant of God, okay, and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've already said that James was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, if I'm James, I'm probably gonna... I'm probably gonna take advantage of that relationship in this moment, right? If I want, I'm writing to the church, I want people to listen to me. They're all worshiping Jesus. So I'm James, a servant of God and brother to the mighty Jesus, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I was there when he was growing up. I watched him pee his pants, you know, or some, you know, something that like, I'm gonna call out who I am. Jesus didn't wear pants. I don't know why I said that. Um, but, you know, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that people might get some name recognition because I was the brother of Jesus. But something has happened in the 10 to 12 years since Jesus died. James has already recognized that he was more than just family, that he was the son of God, that he was the promised one, that he was the Christ. And so consider his humility as he writes to encourage these Christians, these followers of Jesus around the world. James, a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse two, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Joy, trials, joy, trials. Notice the dichotomy there. A trial is something that's challenging. It's something that's hard. It's something that's painful. And James doesn't say, if you face trials or in the unlikely event that you would face a trial, he says, when you face trials, whenever you face trials, in other words, he says, trials are guaranteed. 
They're not an unexpected occurrence. They're not a freak happening, that trials are gonna happen. I think this is the, sum, the, the first lesson we can learn. And if you've got your note card, you're taking notes, this is uh, point number, will face trials. There are the app open. You can, do, you can look at it there. You will face trials. You will face trials. There are, basically we can say there are three types of people in this world. There are those of us who have been through a major trial, those of us who are going through a major trial, and those of us who will go through a major trial, right? We all go through trials. Yours may be physical, it may be spiritual, it may be emotional, or it may be relational. Some of us have a lot of trials and some of us face only a few. But spend a few years spinning around this crazy world and you are going to face some trials. And let's not minimize that, all right? Let's not overlook that because it's easy for us if we're not the ones facing a trial, right? It's easy for us to give the advice, you should consider it pure joy, right? If we're on the outside looking in and we have a friend or a family member that's facing a trial, how easy is it for us to say, hey, you should consider that pure joy, but we're not the one that's facing the very real consequences of that trial, right? Trials are hard, they're painful. We can't just ignore them. And James is not advising us to ignore our trials or to pretend that they don't really hurt. But James plea to us, whatever our situation is this, don't let the trial get the best of you, right? Don't let it overcome you. In fact, just a few verses later, James is gonna challenge us to consider how God may use trials in our lives to do something great. Look at verse 12. We'll come back to two or to three, I promise. But verse 12 says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. See, James understood something that we don't know, and it's this, and it's point number two in your notes. Trials are an opportunity to grow. Verse two, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He says, consider it pure joy. Not that it is pure joy, but that we should consider it pure joy. Realize that he's not telling us how we should feel about our trials, Okay, rather he's telling us how we should think about our trials. He's saying, basically, there's a way of thinking that when you're going through a hard time, it would be helpful for you to adopt this way of thinking. And notice here he writes trials of many kinds. As we read through the book of James over the next six weeks, we're gonna learn about a wide range of trials that the Christians of the day were facing. Things like poverty, injustice, conflict, sickness, grief, political strife. Therefore, his advice is true for trials of many kinds. And so that means that whatever kind of trial we're facing, James has good words for us. No matter how great or how small you think your trial feels compares to others, James's words are going to apply to us. His words of wisdom are for all of us. So verse three, he says this, we should consider it pure joy. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now we see that James is talking about growth here. He's saying that trials can grow us, right? He's talking about what it means to be shaped and be transformed as followers of Jesus. And if you think about it, isn't that what many of us desire? Don't we desire to become more and more like Jesus? I mean, Jesus is our model for life and ministry. And James says, if we never face trials, we will be, look, the opposite of mature and complete. We will be immature and incomplete. 
that if we never face trials, we'll be immature and incomplete and we'll never become more like Jesus. Now that's a tough pill to swallow, right? I mean, the trials, the challenges, the pain of life provide for us an opportunity to grow in our faith. Basically, we will never get to who God wants us to be without facing trials. And he says, because you know. Well, how do we know? How do we know that the testing of our faith produces perseverance? Well, we know this from other areas of our life, right? Maybe you hate practice, but if you're gonna ever learn to play the piano, the pain of practice is what's gonna help you get better. If you've ever lifted weights, you know that the pain of pushing your muscles hurts, but you're never gonna get them gains unless you push those weights, right? If you wanna grow, you're gonna have to face the pain. Ask a pregnant woman. I don't recommend this, okay? Ask a pregnant woman when a woman is giving birth to a baby in the delivery room and there's a baby coming out of her body, at that moment, ask her if she never wants to have another child again. I promise you, you will get punched in the throat. (laughs) But once that baby is delivered and cleaned up and it's placed in her arms and she can feel the warm skin on hers and she gets that, you know, that fresh new baby smell, I promise you, ask her then if it was all worth it and she'll say yes. Pain provides an opportunity to grow. And the the same is true with our faith. Faith is a muscle. The more you work it, the more it grows. And God desires to grow each and every one of us. He wants to mature us. And how does he do that? Well, he often does it through trials. My my landscaper friends tell me that a, a drought can actually be good for a tree because in those seasons of drought, they're forced to send their roots down deeper And when they do that, a stronger tree is a result. God wants us to grow our faith. He wants us to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let that be an encouragement to you today, that there's a purpose for your trials. They're they're never wasted because God is using them to do something in us. us. Uh, Think of it as an investment in our faith. God is investing in our faith during those trials. Now, we may not enjoy the trial, that's okay. We may not like the painful process, but if we focus in on what God can do in us through the trial, instead of focusing on our circumstances, if we can look to what God is going to do in us through that trial or through the painful process, we can consider it joy. We can think about it as joy because the Lord is gonna bring something good from it. And James knows that. He understands that. He knows that God can do things in our suffering. He, he realizes that we are in a better place to hear from God when times are hard. Do you know that? We're in a better place to hear from God when times are hard. I I promise you, if I were to ask, how many of you came to know God because your marriage was great, your job was humming along, and you, you were facing financial prosperity, raise your hand. I bet not many hands would go up in the room. But if I ask you, how many of you met God on the way down? And it was a problem in a relationship. It was a problem in your health. It was, uh, you lost the job. Uh, you are facing bankruptcy or financial hard times. I bet a lot of hands would shoot up because isn't it true? It's easier to hear from God when times are hard. And if we focus on what God's gonna do in us through the trial, then we can see that God can bring something good from it. Comfort can accomplish what pain can in our lives. But you can see how it's a battle of the mind, right? I mean, especially if, if you've lost someone you love, if your marriage is really struggling, if, if you're facing serious health issues, if you've been badly hurt by someone, 
or if you've struggled with depression or anxiety for a long time. If you've experienced any of these things, you know what the battle's like. And if they go on long enough, it's easy to get frustrated and wanna give in. I wanna be clear on something, by the way, here. It's not a sin to seek out help. Like if you're facing anxiety or depression, if you're really struggling with something in your life, whether it's talking to a pastor, uh, meeting with a counselor, talking to a psychiatrist or a medical doctor, if you struggle with depression or anxiety, please get real help. Please get real help. Too many of us have been affected recently by suicide or suicide attempts. It shouldn't be shameful to seek medical attention for a medical problem. If you have a chemical imbalance, um, you're not gonna just pray that away right? Let's, just like you would for cancer or heart disease or diabetes, let's use a combination of prayer and treatment, okay? We need you here. We need you around. So get help. But we do have to change the way we think. James isn't being unrealistic when he says that we can consider it pure joy. He realizes that you and I, we're going to have to fight to change the way we think about our trials, and what he's going to teach us is that in spite of our circumstances, we've got to keep our eyes up, looking ahead to what God's going to do and not looking around to the things that are happening around us, all right? That if when we look forward, when we look ahead to what God's gonna teach us during our trials, that he can grow our faith in that. And that brings us to uh, the third point in your notes, and this is good news, that you can ask for help. You can ask for help from the Lord. Uh, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Look, we don't have a God who is passive, right? That's the good news for you today. Your heavenly father is not just standing by going, ooh, that's a real shame. I'm sorry you got into that. Like, like he cares about what's happening in your life. He has wisdom and you can ask him for it. And maybe that's what you needed to hear today. You know, your heavenly father is not just standing you by watching you suffer. Because here's the thing, in the church, we, can, we have this problem and it's that we can get a little too big on ourselves. We can start to think the longer I've been a Christian, the longer I've been around this faith stuff, the longer I've been around church, the more independent I should become. I mean, I should start teaching other people about this stuff instead of worrying about you know, depending on Christ for myself. But, but that's not the way this whole thing works. I mean, the truth is that one of the ways we grow in our faith is by depending on Jesus. And in fact, I've been a Christian for, well, almost 25 years now, and I don't need Jesus less today than I did 25 years ago. I need him more today. I'm more dependent on him than I was 25 years ago. Now, some of you, when you face trials, what you do is you turn away and run from God. Like you stop coming to church, you stop going to your small group, you don't return people's phone calls, but don't do that. You can't, you can't do that. We need God and we need each other. Like that's one of the ways that we grow in our faith. Now, what could change if instead of running out when you're in trouble, you leaned in? James realizes that we need wisdom. And so he reminds us that when you face trials, go to God with it. Sam Albury, who's a pastor and author, he's one of my favorites right now. Sam says, we are supposed to feel that we need divine help. It is healthy at these times to realize how much we don't know. 
We're not letting anyone down. In fact, as is so often the case with prayer, listen to this, we find that God is far more willing to answer our prayers than we are to offer them. Back to verse five. Notice what he teaches us about God. He says, he gives generously. He's not selfish or stubborn about his wisdom, right? He gives to all. God's wisdom is not restricted to the best or brightest among us. You don't have to be a platinum member of this church to have access to God's wisdom, right? Everybody has access to it, all who love him. He gives generously to all without finding fault. Isn't that a relief? That when we go to God and we ask him for help and we ask him to rescue us from our situation, he's not gonna go, well, you got yourself into this. You know, you ought to find a way out. That's not the God we serve. He's not like that. He's loving, he's kind, he's generous. How do we know he's generous? Because he's the same God that sent his one and only son, Jesus, to earth to be our savior. What an example of what a generous God he is. Romans 8 puts it this way. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Generously, graciously, he loves to help. Verse six, he says, but when you ask you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. What does that mean? Does that, does that mean I can never have doubts? Does that mean I can never ask questions? Does that mean I can never struggle? What, what then? Well, I think what James would say is this, and this is point four, we need to let our trials cause us to trust in God. We need to trust in God. If you're overwhelmed with life, if you're, if you're struggling under the pressure of some great trials and challenges, that we need to let the trials of life cause us to trust God even more. He says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, we're gonna to go to verse nine and we're gonna see what seems to be a pretty abrupt gear change. Uh, but we'll look into that here in a second. Okay, verse nine. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now, as I said, this is kind of a weird part of this passage. It's kind of a quick gear change there from James, but let's see what he's up to. First, he addresses the poor. And now in that culture, if you were poor, it kind of meant that you had failed at life. I mean, think, thank God that's changed, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, how many... Uh, young girls bring, uh, were telling their mom about their boyfriend and they say, he, he's, he's handsome and, and he's smart and he's so funny and he's just got this really infectious laugh and he's, he's just so, so poor. No, we don't say that, right? Because that's not something that we brag about. We don't think like that. We feel sorry for people who are poor. But James reminds us that in Christ, even if the world says you are nobody, you are somebody. He says, in Jesus Christ, you have everything. You have everything you need. This is the high position he's talking about in verse nine. And then he talks to the rich. He says, most people are gonna fall into one of those two categories, all right? So the poor and the rich. And he says, if you're a rich, he warns us to be humble because the world's gonna call you a success. 
that if you're rich, the, the world's gonna pay attention to that and they're not gonna care so much about what kind of a person you are or who you are on the inside or how you treat people. You must be doing something right because you've got lots of stuff. But James says for rich Christians, the power of Jesus is very humbling. It should be humbling for us. And he really wants to reinforce that we have to decide, like what's the most important thing in our life? We have to decide. You know, we, we can put our faith and our hope in any a number of things in this world. But with any of those things, anything that we trust in, he says, we've got to recognize, like how important is that going to be in 25 years or 50 years or 100 years? And what I've come to realize myself is that the most important thing in life is, do you have a relationship with God? Like, have you trusted Christ? The good news is that God made a way for us to have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus. He is life. He is hope. He is our future. He is the prize we desire. He is meaning and purpose. He is everything that we need. He is our helper. He is our friend. And he is the only way we're going to be able to endure trials. Jesus is the only way to make it through. And so what that means for us is that Point five in your notes is that we must learn to abide in Jesus. We are nothing without him. We don't, I don't have the strength required to survive in this world on my own. Like he is the one who is able. He is the only real and lasting treasure we could ever hope for in this world. We are bankrupt without him. Remember what we talked about a few weeks back. We did a whole series called One Thing about abiding in Christ. And the most important thing we can do as Christians is abide in him. We've got to stay relationally connected to him. We have to remain in him. It's in those times of abiding that he speaks to us, that he guides us, that he directs us. He can encourage us. Sometimes he shows us the way to go. And sometimes he shows us where we went wrong. We have to abide in him. Verse 12. He says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James reminds us here that life is a bit like a race, that the day-to-day training and struggling is very real, it's very painful, but the one who keeps trusting and persevering is the one who can look past the pain of the race and see the prize at the end, right? The very best racers are the ones who can visualize a day, a time when the pain is over and the prize is theirs, the prize is in their hands. Because you know when it's easiest to trust in God? It's easiest to trust in God when we know how the story ends, right? I mean, just, just imagine, just, I'll use this example. Imagine sometime today you, you get home and you turn on a football game. I know some of you don't like football and I use a lot of a football analogy. So if you don't like football, just pretend it's a movie, okay? It works the same way. But, but it's a football game. In my case, it's a football game. And it's a meaningful game. It's an important game. So it's not my team. It's some other team. Uh, but for some reason, you're emotionally invested in this game. It's an important game, all right? So you get home and you turn on the TV and it's not looking good your team's down by two touchdowns and the other team has the ball and they're driving down the field. And with every play, with every success the opposing team has, uh, you start to get worried and your hands are clenched in fists and your palms are starting to sweat and you've got little things floating around in your stomach and you're anxious and you're nervous and every play 
that happens when they're advancing down the field. You're going, why? Why did you let that happen? Why did you do that? Why didn't you play? This is not me. This is somebody, generic person in our church, all right? <laughs> this is you. It's you we're talking about, right? And you start to get nervous and anxious because you don't know what's going to happen. But now imagine this. Imagine that that game is actually recorded. And on the way home, you accidentally turn on the radio and you heard the final score and somehow your team won. And now when you get home and you're watching in the middle of the game, same situation, same circumstances, okay? But you're watching that game and your team's down by two touchdowns and the other team's marching down the field. But you know in the end that your team won. Now, instead of why is this happening, you're asking questions like, wow, I can't wait to see how they turn this around. I can't wait to see how they came back from this. I can't wait to see how my team came back and won the game. Did you know that the Bible tells us that God can use all things for our good? It does. Look, Romans 8, 28 says this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And here's what you need to know about that. God doesn't cause all things. You know, sometimes trials happen because we mess up. I mess up all the time and I cause my own trials in my life. Sometimes trials happen because somebody else messes up and it messes things up for us. That's a hard one, right? And sometimes trials are just a result of us living in this like broken world that we have to live in. But God promises that he can use all things for our good and for his glory. Look at this verse. We know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And how do we know? Well, because we see it in the very life of Jesus. You know, the son of God who came to earth, he left a glorious heaven to, open, to enter this broken, fallen world and live a perfect life as an example for us to follow. He, he was a man rejected by many. The Bible says he was a stranger to his brothers and sisters, including, we assume at one time, his brother James, that he was a stranger to him, that he was hunted down by the religious elite. He was trapped in meaningless debates. He was eventually arrested and tried by the power brokers of the day and put to death simply because he was who he claimed to be. Trial after trial after trial in the life of Jesus. But after he died, he didn't stay dead. After an excruciating death, he rose again on the third day, just like he promised. And he appeared to many, including, we see in scripture, he appeared to his brother James. And he ascended into heaven, but he sent us the Holy Spirit to help us abide in him. And one day, one day, he's coming back. He's coming back and, and we will be his people and he will be our God and there will be no more mourning and no more pain, no more trials in our lives. And Jesus himself will wipe every tear from our eye. How can we know that? Well, because we know how the story ends. And when we know how the story ends, isn't it easier to trust God? Now, with that in mind, this trial that you're going through right now, you can consider it pure joy. And I can't wait to see how it turns around. I can't wait to see what God is going to do in you. How will it be used for your good and for his glory? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this truth that you use all things for our good.
some of us are going through things right now that we can't possibly see how it's gonna be used for our good. But Lord, we know the end of the story. When we read scripture, we see what's gonna happen. We know how this story ends. We know that you have a prize for us at the end, as James 1.12 says, that, that there's an eternal prize waiting for us. And when we know that, Lord, it's easier to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. Help us to see that. Help us to see our trials in the same way you see them, as an opportunity to grow in our faith, to become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Because God, honestly, on this side of heaven, that's hard to do sometimes. We need your help. We need your wisdom to see our trials that way. God, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.